Today, we, we come to the conclusion today of the, the portion of the epistle that is emphasizing our walk as Christians. As you might remember, uh, we, we talked about the, the possible divisions of the epistle, and we, we, um, we've been looking at it as the, the wealth, the walk, and the warfare of the Christian. So the wealth is in those first three chapters primarily where the apostle is just really laying out for us all of the, the great things God has done for us through Christ. Then we, we come to the section on the walk where we've been being taught uh, how we're to live our lives. And then finally, uh, in, starting in a couple of weeks, we'll come to the subject of uh, warfare. So here in the passage that we read together today, Paul speaks to the believers in Ephesus about the relationship that existed then between servants and masters or slaves and masters. The word can be translated either way. Uh, That relationship does not exist in our context, but something similar to it exists in the employee and employer relationship. Now, my intention today was just to talk about that, that relationship, employee, employer, you know, how, how are we to conduct ourselves as uh, employees or employers? And that was my intention. We're going to do that next time. Uh, today, I feel like we need to focus on, on the, the, the subject in its original context and um, looking at it from from the standpoint of the gospel and how it related to uh, the slave-master relationship. So the reason I believe it is necessary to do this is because so often today we hear people stating uh, these kinds of things. They they say that the Bible and Christianity have uh, historically supported and promoted slavery. And, and this is some of the rhetoric that we hear today in, in the media. This is uh, what almost every young person on a university campus is going to hear from their professors. And of course, it's a, it's a critical statement. It's a condemning statement uh, regarding the Christian faith. Uh, but, but the reality is, it's not quite as it is being presented. Uh, the Bible does not promote slavery. Note that. It does not promote slavery, nor does it directly condemn it. Uh, the Bible speaks of slavery as a fact of life, for that indeed was the case uh, when the scriptures were written. But as we'll see, the teaching of the New Testament especially undermined the most negative elements of slavery and set in motion its end. So now, have Christians at certain times supported and promoted slavery? Uh, Tragically, yes. Uh, But they did it without biblical support and contrary to the spirit of Christ. So that's what we want to look at today. I want to look at slavery in its original context, as Paul addressed it here. And then I, w- I want to take it from beyond that to look uh, a little bit at uh, the subject of racism, which, of course, um, some forms of slavery have obviously been connected to. But before we get there, let's look at 
uh, slavery in the ancient world. And I want to quote to you from a uh, writer, and bear with me, this is what he said. He said, slavery seems to have been universal in the ancient world. A high percentage of the population were slaves. It has been computed that in the Roman Empire, there were 60 million slaves. They constituted the workforce and included not only domestic servants and manual laborers, but educated people as well, like doctors, teachers, and administrators. Slaves could be inherited or purchased or acquired in settlement of a bad debt, and prisoners of war commonly became slaves. Nobody questioned or challenged the arrangement. The institution of slavery was a fact of Mediterranean economic life so completely accepted as part of the labor structure of the time that one cannot correctly speak of the slave problem in antiquity. This unquestioning acceptance of the slave system explains why Plato, in his plan of the good life as depicted in the Republic, did not need to mention the slave class. It was simply there. Uh, Regarding Aristotle, for all his intellect and culture, Aristotle could not contemplate any friendship between slave and slave owner. For he said a slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. So this dehumanization, says the author, of slaves in the public mind was mirrored in early Roman legislation. Legally, slaves were only chattels without rights whom their master could treat as he pleased. Consequently, accounts of terrible atrocities have survived, especially from the pre-Christian era. At the same time, it would be a grave mistake to suppose that this kind of barbaric treatment was either habitual or universal or that it continued unabated into the first century AD. In the 50 to 80 years before the coming of Christ, 500,000 slaves have been set free by the government, and in the years immediately before and after the coming of of Christ, the state enacted laws that would greatly improve the plight of slaves. So in Paul's day, Roman slavery was not nearly as harsh as it had been earlier. So that kind of puts the, the subject in its historical context. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, critics of Christianity often accusingly ask why the early Christians did not do away with slavery. This to them is a huge problem that the Christians didn't deal with this in the early days. Now, honestly, it's not a bad question if it's asked sincerely. Most of the time, it's not asked sincerely. It's just asked, uh, you know, like I said, uh, in an accusing tone, just wanting to give another excuse for why uh, a person would not want to uh, respond to the gospel. But it's not a bad question in and of itself. So why did, or why didn't the early Christians uh, do away with slavery? Well, number one, simply that was not their mission. That was not their mission. Their mission was to preach the gospel 
of the emancipation of man from bondage to sin through faith in Jesus Christ. In a sense, they, they really did preach against slavery, a different form of slavery, though, a, a more permanent and debilitating and severe form of slavery, that is the slavery to sin. So you see, from the, from the gospel perspective, all people are enslaved, regardless of what the, the, um, their situation is uh, politically or economically or whatever the case. We are all in bondage to sin. So their mission was to preach deliverance from bondage to sin. Now, that gospel that they preached, once received into society, would bring about the demise of slavery, and that's exactly what it did over time. What, what those who are critical of, of the Christian faith and try to make the connection between Christianity and slavery, what they often forget or overlook or just refuse to acknowledge is that um, the abolitionists, both in England and in America, were, sla- were, were Christians. The, the, whole, the, the whole movement was driven by Christians. It was William Wilberforce in England who uh, pushed for and gave, gave his life uh, for the, um, the uh, abolition of, of slaves in that part of the world. And, and Wilberforce was greatly inspired by and supported by John Wesley, who was the great Methodist leader uh, during that time. So, number one, it wasn't their mission. Secondly, they had no ability to do such a thing for they had no political power. You see, what people also forget is that the early Christians had no political power. They were a small minority group they were, uh, in m- most cases, made, much of the church was made up of slaves, uh, and, and they were a persecuted minority. For the first 300 years of Christian history, the church was a minority group persecuted by the state. So they had no political clout, they had no political power, they had no political ability to do that. So those are two things. Here's another thing that's indirectly related to it. Uh, what we need to remember is that ancient slavery differed from latter forms of slavery in that it was not race-based. Now, one of the most appalling things about slavery as we've known it in more recent history is the, the race component in that. I think most people would agree with that. That was not the situation in the ancient world. So whenever people talk about, well, you know, why didn't the Christians do away with slavery? These are the reasons. It wasn't their mission. They had no real power to do it. And slavery was a a different thing. Some have said that had they sought to do it, of course, they never could have because, as I said, they didn't have the power. But the, the whole societal structure was so connected to slavery because it was the way it was for all, all of time, essentially, that uh, society itself would have disintegrated if something like that would have been attempted. But as we've already seen in the ancient world, there wasn't even so much the thought that that was something that needed to be dealt with. But it, the, the gospel itself did plant the seed for the ultimate demise of slavery. So, 
What did the gospel bring to the ancient slave-master relationship that changed the immediate circumstance of the individual slave? And, and what did it bring that set in motion that which would finally bring an end to slavery? Well, it brought three things, and these things come out in the text that we read together today. Number one, it brought equality. The teaching of the gospel brought equality. And we need to understand this. The apostles' teaching was revolutionary. This was revolutionary. Nobody thought this way. Nobody uh, said these kinds of things. Nobody insisted that there was equality in those times. The apostles' teaching was revolutionary. And what was the teaching? In this new kingdom, this kingdom of God that Jesus had brought, all the distinctions that put a person or a group of people in a place of less intrinsic value, all of those distinctions were abolished. Race, the distinction in race was abolished. Paul, in writing to the Galatians in uh, the third chapter, the 28th verse, he said that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Now, Gentile is just a, a word that encompasses everybody outside of the Jewish uh, race. And, and those were the sharp divisions, of course. Uh, the Gentiles had their own divisions as well, but from Paul's perspective, he looks at it from the Jew and the Gentile. That distinction was abolished in Christ. Class, he said, neither in Christ are, is there slave or free. That distinction has been abolished. Uh, gender distinction, male or female, Paul's point is that all had equal standing before God. See, that's what the gospel brought. The, the, the gospel brought equality, that all had equal standing and equal value before God. So equality, number one. Secondly, what the gospel brought to the ancient slave-master relationship was justice. Justice. What is implicit here in the passage that we read, particularly um, the ninth verse, let me read it again, and you masters do the same to them to your servants, giving up threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So um, what is implicit here in the general instruction to the masters to do the same to their servants is made explicit in the parallel passage found in Colossians chapter four, verse one. There Paul says, masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven, and as Paul added here, and there is no partiality with him. So justice for slaves was, again, a revolutionary new concept. There wasn't anybody that was thinking in these terms uh, in Paul's day. The closest person to it on public record would have been Seneca. And Seneca was still not ready to, although he was... Um, thinking that you know, there, there should be more consideration of the plight of the slave, he was not ready to bring them over into an, an equal kind of uh, category and um, a, a place where they were perceived to actually have rights. So again, this is revolutionary from the New Testament. So essentially, it was the gospel which insisted that slaves had rights. Before the gospel of Jesus Christ, nobody 
thought for a moment that a slave had any right. And, and even from the legal standpoint, still they didn't. A master owned a slave. But from the, the biblical standpoint, and now from this new thing that's happening with the gospel and in the church, that has changed on a practical level. So this is made plain by the reciprocal nature of the slave-master relationship. You see, the passage we read addresses a slave, but then, unlike any other legislation of the day, it turns around and addresses the master. It's reciprocal. Both have a responsibility to each other. For if slaves had duties to their masters, masters had duties to their slaves. Then the master's duties became the slave's rights and just uh, in the same way the slave's duties became the master's rights. So equality, justice, but one further step. The highest aspect of the transformed slave-master relationship would be brotherhood. You see, this is where the gospel went even, even further because the gospel said, not only is there equality, not only is there, does there need to be justice, but we need to understand that we are brothers. They're, they're, now we're, we're in this brotherhood situation. We're, we're all members of the same family. And Paul, he would communicate this in a personal letter to Philemon, he would communicate this radical truth of brotherhood even with a person who was a slave, putting the, the master and the slave on that kind of a level. When Paul wrote to Philemon, he was writing to uh, urge Philemon to receive back his fugitive but now converted slave Onesimus. And Paul went on to say that, that, uh, that Philemon was not only to receive Onesimus back, Onesimus was a slave who had run away, um, but he, he says that you're to welcome him no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. John Stott in his commentary, he said the words, these words would have sounded incredible to all but Christian ears. Nobody could have imagined this. You're writing to a guy, he's a master, uh, uh, he's a slave owner, his slave has rebelled against him, run away, and, but now he's gonna come back and you say, okay, receive him back as a slave, but oh, by the way, you, you need to really treat him as a brother. In, in that world, nobody would have ever dreamed to say or think anything like that. That's exactly what Paul says, because that was the case. He was now a brother. The concept of brotherhood was Paul's innovation and is one of the major themes of this epistle to the Ephesians. For God's new society is the father's household or family, all of whose members are related to one another in Christ as brothers and sisters. A message which thus united master and slave as brothers issued its radical challenge to an institution which separated them as proprietor and property. Therefore, it was only a matter of time 
slavery would be abolished from within. And that's exactly what happened. You see, because as I said initially, what the gospel did is it undermined those most troubling aspects of slavery. Now, um, believe it or not, even in the Old Testament period, you have laws back at the time of Moses that also, uh, although, although it didn't strictly forbid slavery, but, but the laws of Moses definitely took much of the cruelty out of the practice uh, at the time. But so what the gospel does, it just completely, it, it just guts slavery of much of its uh, motivation and eventually the, the whole slave thing would, would just die away, at least in places where the, the Christian faith had a strong influence. So, so that's the ancient situation. That's the ancient world. That's the context uh, that we looked at here as Paul is writing to the Ephesians. So here's the question. How does this speak to us today? How does this speak to us today? Well, I think those same three things uh, would speak to us today. Number one, equality. We have to remember that, right? All men are created equal. We say that. And hopefully we believe that. We believe that God created. And we believe that, that all people, every human being, is created in the image of God. That's not just part of the Bill of Rights. Of course, Jefferson borrowed that from the Bible. They, they understood that from the scriptures. That's what the scriptures taught. That all men are truly created equal. But... Not everybody has lived according to that belief. And apparently, not everybody actually does believe it. Racism is a reality. It is a fact. It is still a fact to this day in our culture. Racism in the world is a tragedy and a grief. No question about it. And so much heartache and pain and misery have resulted from racism. It is indeed a tragedy and a grief. Racism in the church is an abomination. It's beyond a tragedy and a grief. It is an abominable thing because if there's one place that racism never should have had any place whatsoever, it's in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, you might say, okay, well, why are you saying this? Because we're not racist. And I hope we're not. But guess what? Unfortunately, tragically, sadly, throughout history, there have been Christians who have thought that certain people were in some way, shape, or form less than um, uh, human and, and not as highly valued and, and really not created equally. And they have... Uh, supported subjugation of those people. That, that's been a fact in the history of the church, a sad and a horrible fact. But it's not, unfortunately, something that's only in the past. It still exists today. It still exists today. There are places in this country today that, uh, depending on the color of your skin, you might not be welcomed in a church. And this is a great travesty. So, 
may there never be a racist attitude among us. Remember, God said that my house is a house of prayer for all nations. You see, with God, there is no respecter of persons. There is no partiality. So we have to understand that this equality is, from God's perspective, this is a reality. Secondly, justice. As Christians, we should do our best to assure justice for those who are oppressed because of the color of their skin, their social status, uh, their, their language, perhaps, uh, even their religion. Now, again, in our culture today, as most of you will know very well, there's racial tension. And racial tension has um, been um, inflamed uh, over the past uh, several months. We, we've seen this in different parts of the country. And so it's a reality. It's still there. So there's racial, racial tension in our culture today. There's tension over immigration issues. And we know about that. We've heard about that. And we should be working to alleviate that. You see, that's our, our place as Christians is to do what we can to alleviate that. Well, how do we do that? Well, it's real simple. We can start with the commandments of Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You see, here's what happens a lot of times. Because maybe we have never been the um, recipients of racism. And because maybe we've, we've never uh, been actively racist ourselves, sometimes we have a sort of a tendency to just dismiss that as even a real issue. Oh, well, no, what are these people talking about? There's, there's no racism in our culture today. I don't see any racism. Well, maybe it's because you just live in the right neighborhood. You live in a neighborhood where that doesn't exist. But believe me, there are plenty of places that you can find in the country where that is very much a reality. So I think it starts with just in our hearts, putting ourselves in the shoes of other people. And if I was having any kind of racist attitude directed toward me, how would I want other people to think about that? I, I, I would want them to recognize that that's a reality. I want them, would want them to want to see justice prevail. I would want to hear a, a, a compassionate tone from them saying, you know, that's wrong. We, we, we can't let that happen. So it starts in, in the heart. That's where it begins. And then out from there, we should involve ourselves in things that will alleviate this. If we see that this kind of thing is definitely happening, we as Christians have a responsibility. It's part of our Christian responsibility to speak up, to speak out, to say, no, that, that's not right. That shouldn't happen. And so justice. Thirdly, brotherhood. Brotherhood. God is wanting to grow his family. God is wanting to grow his family. He wants to increase the number of his children. If we who are presently his children, if we've got a closed heart and a closed door, say for our churches, oh, no, 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 we don't, 
sorry, you know, we, we, you need to go somewhere else. How, how is that adding to the family of God? That's potentially pushing people away from. And listen, it's a, it's a fact. It's a sad fact. People have been turned off to the gospel and, and repelled by Christianity uh, sometimes because of the attitude and behavior of Christians in this area. Now, I have heard uh, people who would never uh, publicly make racist kinds of statements, yet in private I've heard people say things that indicate that they somehow feel that there is some superiority for them over others. Oftentimes we hear people complaining about those, those immigrants. You know, all these immigrant people, what are they doing here? This is our country. Well, as far as I can remember, it's God's planet. He created the whole world. And he created all people. And, um, you know, that, that kind of attitude is just so contrary to the spirit of Christ, to the message of the gospel. You know, I think the best way that we could possibly look at the immigrant situation is that God has just done a wonderful thing in bringing the mission field to us. He saved us a lot of wear and tear. We don't have to travel so far. We don't have to spend all that money to get to those far off lands. God has brought them here. We have an amazing opportunity. And you know what I have discovered is oftentimes immigrant people are, they're very open to the gospel. They're away from their homeland. They're in a foreign situation. They're oftentimes feeling like they're not welcome. They're vulnerable. They're, they're open to be loved. And they're, they're prime candidates for the gospel. And yet sometimes we hear Christians, even sometimes Christian leaders, you know, talking about this and complaining about this. Now, I, you know, I'm not talking about the political side of uh, illegal immigration and what the government should and shouldn't do. That's all, you know, the government's supposed to do stuff about that. That's what a government's for. But I'm talking about it from the church's standpoint, from the standpoint of, of us as Christians, as God's people. We know that God wants his family to grow. He wants to increase the numbers of his children. And the last thing we want to do is close our doors or even more, close our hearts toward those people, those people that God loves. Remember the prayer that many would say as children, red and yellow, black or white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children. Jesus loves the people of the world. So, those are the, are the ways that I see these kinds of things applying to us. And, and once again, let me urge you uh, not to just dismiss this type of thing. Not to just say, oh, well, I don't, you know, I, I wrote, some of you maybe saw it, I, I wrote um, a little piece a few weeks ago on, on this subject, and it was in relation to the Eric Garner situation in New York and the, uh, the Michael Brown situation in Ferguson. And, you know, I'm, I'm not making any kind of a statement about, you know, the motives of anybody. Uh, that, uh, that had nothing to do with it. 
Um, God knows the, the truth behind all of that. Uh, but whatever that was, the perception from a lot of people is that this is, there's something not right about this. And one of the responses, you know, when you write a blog, people can respond back to it. And one of the responses was basically, you know, essentially it was just dismissing everything I said. Oh, you know, what are you talking about? These, these people have as much opportunity as anybody else and they can do and so on. And I thought, you know, this is the problem right here. It's a heart problem. It's an it's a unwillingness to look at reality. It's a, it's a hardened heart that just results in an indifference. And this is not helpful. When you have a group of people that are saying, you know, we're, we're feeling a little bit unloved. <laughs> we're feeling a little bit unwelcomed. We're feeling a, a little bit uh, discriminated against. We shouldn't dismiss that out of hand. We should... Listen and think it through. And okay, maybe, maybe it's a little bit exaggerated on one side, but maybe it's not. So as God's people, as Christian people, we need to be sensitive to these things. And sometimes we get just caught up in sort of a political mindset and we almost forget our Christianity. We get caught up in more of a, a, a patriotic mentality. There's nothing the matter with patriotism as long as it's balanced by the scriptures. And so that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. And so in closing today, I, I want to quote from Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, it is Martin Luther King Day tomorrow, of course, and I think this is a relevant um, quote to everything that we're talking about. Uh, you know, I know some pastors who would um, be uh, critical of of maybe even quoting Dr. King, because they would say, oh, well, you know, he was, just a, uh, he was just a social activist. He wasn't really, you know, he, he was unfaithful to his wife and all of this kind of stuff. Well, um, you know, he was a Christian, and he spoke out of a, a heart of love and compassion for people. Whatever struggles and issues he had in his personal life, that's between, that was between him and God, of course. But much of what he said was absolutely true and right. And in his famous uh, speech, I Have a Dream, it's, it's a rather long speech. It's a great speech. Read it sometime if you have never read it. Um, but let me quote just a few words from that, that speech. He said, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that my little children, he mentioned his four little children, that my little children will one day live in a nation where they are not judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Now, whether or not that will ever be a reality in the world, I don't know, and I, I highly doubt that it will be because we live in a world full of sin. And sinners will be sinners, and sinners will do what they do. So I don't know that it will ever change on that level, but it is absolutely to be a reality in the church of Jesus Christ, and there is absolutely no excuse for any 
racist mentality, uh, behavior whatsoever, zero. There's a zero tolerance level in the church for racism. It should never exist. And, and what it does, listen, what, what racism does is it, it undermines one of the primary messages of the gospel itself. That's why it's so, it's so baffling as to how Christian people have been racist at times. You have to just disregard the plain message of the gospel. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is no race distinction, no color distinction. There is no class distinction. There is no gender distinction. We are all one in Christ. And so, again, I I don't, I'm not giving this message today because I think we have a race problem in our church. Uh, Thank God, I don't think we do. I'm very happy about that. But of course, things can look one way outwardly, but then internally there can be different things going on, right? So we might not outwardly express any of that, but the question is, is, is there some of that in our hearts? Do we have that in our hearts? You know, I thank God, I was thinking about this. I am so thankful that I grew up with parents who were not remotely racist whatsoever. I don't remember my mom or dad ever, ever one time making any kind of a racist statement. And I'm thankful for that because that's the way they brought me up and that never was an issue in my heart or mind. But I know that's not the case with everybody. And I know it's possible that in our own hearts we can sometimes develop these, these biases and these prejudices. We would never publicly state them necessarily, but yet we harbor them inside. So that's the truth that we have to face individually. And, of course, there's grace and mercy. And as we recognize that that's an area where we have not been right and we come to Christ and we ask him for forgiveness, he does give us forgiveness. And not only does he give us forgiveness, but he oftentimes will fill then our hearts with love for that very group of people that we might have secretly despised. That's the power of the gospel. And so let's keep an open heart and a wide open door so that as many as would be drawn can come and join the family of God right here. So Lord, we, we thank you for the truth that there is no partiality with you. And Lord, we think of how good men are at dividing up into different categories and skin color is just one of so many other things, Lord, as well as economic status. And uh, oftentimes it just can even be as uh, foolish as uh, appearances or somebody's weight or something like that. Lord, forgive our wicked hearts for harboring any of those things. And we thank you that the gospel overpowers all of those things. And Lord, we want to live right in the center of that gospel stream that is flowing for the salvation of men and women of every nation, tribe, and tongue. 
And Lord, we want our fellowship here to be a place where every person of any color or from any nation or language knows that this is their home, that they have a place here, that they're part of the family, your family. And so, Lord, work among us. To that end, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.